This is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. Hi, podcast listeners. I hope you're well. Welcome back this month for another deep dive into our wonderful world of sailboat racing. Wherever you are in the world, if you're a sailing fan, you'll have definitely heard the big news earlier this month that a year after Emirates Team New Zealand successfully defended the America's Cup in Auckland, they've announced the venue for the next edition. It's exciting. And this month, we've got the lowdown and what all that means as we talk to several of the next America's Cup's key stakeholders. Before we dive headlong into the world of the America's Cup, a big, big thank you to all of you who got in touch after last month's podcast. If you haven't listened to my chat with Jason Carrington, stick it on the playlist. He's a man with a few stories to tell. We do love to hear from you, so thanks too to all of you that took the time to head over to buymeacoffee.com. It does make a difference. If you're listening for the first time or you enjoy listening to the podcast and want to support it, it's super simple. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's quick, it's easy, and it's greatly appreciated. Right, so what about this month? As we all know, the sport of sailing has a fairly unique trophy in the world of international sport. It's the oldest trophy in world sport, we know that, and it's governed by the principle set out in a document that originally dates back to 1857. There have been a few amendments, but that document, the Deed of Gift, lays out the principles of competition around the America's Cup. It's a surprisingly short document, but one of the overriding principles is that the club holding the cup, the defender, in this case the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, in agreement with the club challenging for the cup, in this case the Royal Yacht Squadron, makes all of the rules relating to the running of the cup. That includes sailing regulations, the dates, the number of races, and also, of course, the location. Not a big deal, right? Wrong. In the 36 previous runnings of the Cup, only three times has a club elected to hold racing outside of its country's waters. Two of those instances saw landlocked Swiss team Alinghi having to defend the Cup abroad, as without an open ocean in Switzerland, they had no choice. So the Cup was in Valencia. And once more recently, Oracle Team USA chose to defend in Bermuda. It's unusual, but it's also a decision surrounded by all manner of issues, which is why this month we're going to talk to several of the key stakeholders involved in the decision to take the next edition of the America's Cup to the Spanish city of Barcelona. I hope you enjoy the time I spent discussing the venue selection for the next America's Cup. cliche is to say it was a difficult decision, but actually it was. One, two, three, four, five, priority, they're all state team, right? Did we try and get the money in New Zealand? Absolutely. The man spearheading the decision on the venue for the next America's Cup is the man that heads up the New Zealand defenders, Emirates Team New Zealand. On the water, he was a fierce competitor and boasts an enviable sailing CV. For almost two decades, he's been the driving force behind the success of New Zealand's America's Cup team. But back at his home in Auckland, the America's Cup is a passionate subject. And the decision to move the venue of AC37 from New Zealand waters is to some controversial. But as we'll now hear, it's not a decision Grant Dalton took without considerable thought. Grant Dalton, congratulations on the venue announcement. It's exciting news. Tell us, what does Barcelona have as a cup venue that's influenced the decision to come here for AC37? Well, we, there was a number of criteria we need to, needed to fulfil to make a final decision, and it came down to three. And they're all really good, and all could have done an amazing job, and, and they were Barcelona, Malaga, and Jeddah. 
and each had its um, you know own advantages and disadvantages. Um, I think in Barcelona's case, you, you know, one simple thing is the word Barcelona. I mean, it 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 conjures up um, emotions of an amazing city, one of the great cities of the world. And I guess you could just say if you're trying to pick three cities in the world to host the America's Cup, what would they be? And I can guarantee one of them would be Barcelona. So, so you you know you tick that box straight away. Um, it has really good infrastructure because any event, America's Cup event, needs a pretty decent infrastructure around the portland or around the harbour area. And um, in Barcelona, the port control all the main assets that we need in terms of land, infrastructure, etc. So, so really doing a deal with Barcelona is, is partly doing a deal with the port itself. And they've been amazing. I mean, they're just so enthusiastic about it. Uh, the venue itself, from a sailing point of view, is great. You yourself know very well how good it can be. Um, and and there's still the infrastructure, and it's actually being redeveloped partly because of this, around the Olympic port. <laughs> and really the people of Barcelona that we dealt with or are dealing with who are just unbelievably enthusiastic, in some ways see this as their next step from um, from 92 Olympics. Yes, I know the Olympics were a long way, a long time ago, but they certainly have very vivid memories of them as, as actually I do too, you know. Um, so, so it basically ticked all the boxes for us. It was quite a process, wasn't it, Grant? I mean, four bidding venues, if we include Ireland, all with very viable bids, as I understand it. Uh, how difficult a process was it to make that final decision? Give us, give us a glimpse into that. Yeah, I mean, the cliche is to say it was a difficult decision, but actually it was. Um, I, I, the guys, Russell um, and, and, and Tube flew up and, you know, we're working really, really heavily with, with um, Stu and Leslie from, from Origin right from the very start who've been outstanding, you know, because we basically were running almost 24 hours a day for nearly a year, which, you know, we were working our day and they were working, you know, the European or the English day. So we, we had the process running and we talk every single morning at seven o'clock New Zealand time, no matter which sort of um, daylight saving you're in, with 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 a Zoom call between us. I mean, that's every day. Now that doesn't sound like much of a deal, big deal, but that's every day. And I can think I missed one call that I can remember, and maybe Hoops missed one or someone missed one, but basically we never missed a call. So, so we were right on it and stayed on it the whole time. And you know, just absolute credit to to Stu and Leslie. Um, uh, you know, and what they were able to, you know, help us achieve. Um, we, we got down to the three. Ireland was right there at the end, and then um, well, they pulled out after we decided they weren't in. So um, maybe, you know, I don't know whether that was a coincidence or not, uh, but that was on the Monday and we announced it on the Tuesday. So we got right down to, we announced it on the Tuesday, which was the, I'm going to say the 28th of uh, March, uh, 29th in New Zealand, which is the protocol sort of timeline date or timing. And um, that was a Tuesday. And we didn't make a final decision until the Sunday. Sunday. And um, uh, for that decision on the Sunday, we brought over or asked to come over two of the key people out of Barcelona because we wanted to talk through. It was sort of like, you know, the jury retiring and coming back to ask some questions. Um, and then at that point in the afternoon, I think like two or three o'clock in the afternoon, we, we um, uh, you know, said, yes, it's Barcelona. Now, one of the interesting things about it is now Tuesday is the um, announcement. I mean, you're 48 hours away from the announcement. And Barcelona doesn't know they've got it until 48 hours before. But one of the things which is really important to us and, and, and you know, it, it, it sounds obvious, but I'm not sure some people would make this step, is we wanted absolute verification that effectively nothing could go wrong and that um, no matter who was in power, whether the, you know, which party was in the in the region or, or the city or wherever, that this was lock, rock solid and, you know, um, it would be, uh, it wouldn't matter who was there. So we wanted a... a verification from the actual general attack from the region a signed declaration that had been it actually not just been signed off by you know the the, the um, president but that the whole region had voted on it 
and agreed it. So that you know there was was belt and braces. And their meeting was on the Tuesday morning. Remember, we were announcing this thing on the Tuesday. Their meeting, which was their weekly meeting, was on the Tuesday morning, and it was put in as, as quickly as an agenda item. Um, as we were driving to the announcement from our hotel to into the um, the, the, the the palace of the region and the the, the council palace, if you like, in the what they call the, the region palace, literally across the square from each other, they're within 30, 40 metres of each other. As we were driving there, the cup was already there. To announce it, uh, the uh, the call came through from Louis Sainz, you know, a lawyer working on it, that it had been now um, officially sanctioned by the region. So absolute belt and braces. That's how tight it was. And, you know, it seems to be something in our DNA that we tend to do that quite a bit. But you know, literally we were driving. But like it's a three-kilometre drive and we're halfway there. So it was pretty. It was all pretty tight at the end, but it always seems to be. But the, you know, the thing is that they're just amazing. They're just so enthusiastic. They've got such uh, great ho- hopes and dreams for what the cup can bring to Barcelona, and they fit. It fits perfectly with us as well. But it's not to say that both Malaga and Jetta would not have done an amazing job as well. It's quite flattering for the cup. Uh, I guess I'm for sailing January, Grant, that, that four significant venues were offering to extend all that effort and money, of course, to host the Cup. I mean, when I think about that, it's, I mean, it's not an Olympics or a FIFA World Cup, but, but it's still a big investment. I mean, how surprised were you that four went, venues went all the way to the end of the process with, I mean, fully viable offers? Well, I think the, 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 the question's another one. How surprised was the rest of the world and all our critics that it even happened? I mean, there's some people who just be, they still wouldn't have got the lemons out of their mouth, you know, because, you know, I, but we, I think we did quite a nice job of effectively the perfect America's Cup misinformation, uh, and people thought we were struggling. Um, and, you know, we, it was good to keep it that way because effectively that, that um, meant that the, the uh, smug crowd in New Zealand were just sitting there thinking we were coming, you know, back cap in hand. I mean, I even saw an interview, literally a TV interview with the mayor in Auckland saying, uh, well, when they come back because they can't get a deal away, I'm hearing, you know, well, it's not going to be easy for them here. You know, and I just sat there, you know, um, just quietly watching that thinking, no, guess what, mate? Um, So, so... Uh, that was, that, I think one of the other things that people completely got wrong is that Jetta was some sort of smokescreen stalking horse. It wasn't. It was incredibly real. And one of the really amazing things about this is the, the enormous support that the squadron um, had for you know, what we were doing. And we, they were kept instantly in, you know, in every piece of this across it. And Aaron, uh, the Commodore... Uh, you know, really well backed up by Gillian, et cetera, who was a lawyer in own right and originally worked for Oracle at one point um, uh, in, I think, Valencia. You know, they they came under some pretty serious mortifier. Um, and it went on for, you know, as you know, for, for, for a year. But they stood strong and they trusted and they believed and they knew they knew what they were being told was, you know, effectively a bunch of porkies. And, and you know, we, I've got nothing but, uh, you know, uh, admiration and credit because they're a yacht club. I mean, they don't. Pl- their job is not to play this rough and tumble. So I think you know, you know, I wasn't surprised because we always knew they would. Those bids were going well, and so so um, you know, for quite a while we knew that this was on. Uh, I think the mistake, one of our my first mistake was to to say that we could do it in September announce it, um, which was six months after the cup, which was just too tight. And if you look retrospectively, which frankly I should have probably done at the time, at the timing of other event announcements or venue announcements, I think Bermuda was 14 months, and I think Valencia was even longer than that. Um, So to hit it in 12 months was probably still pretty good. So we have the decision Barcelona 2024. I mean, looking at the sailing landscape as a whole, how big a deal do you think it is holding the cup in Europe? It's not perhaps that obvious to a lot of people, but there are some significant upsides, right? Well, time zone's one of them. But, but again, you've got to go back a step and say, well, why are we doing it in the first place? Because, you know, we're, we're true blue. We're Kiwis. And, 
you know, the team will always be the priority. You know, one, two, three, four, five priorities, they're all, say, team, right? In saying that, though, we want an absolutely amazing event. Um, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense with a defender. We have a responsibility to that. But the team will always be the priority. And so, you know, you can't take money out of this equation because, it, you know, we, as I stood in a number of meetings and uh, more articles, negative articles against the team and myself that I could even count uh, if I started counting now and it's finished in two hours uh, in New Zealand, completely misunderstood and still do the actual original motive. And the original motive was to make, to put the team in its best financial position to uh, be able to have a chance against amazingly strong teams coming at us to, to, to three peat. Um, and so that, you know, that was always hellishly important. Uh, and in fact, it was the start, as I say, the primary starting position. Because the way it's structured financially is the event now basically is paid for. If we didn't spend or didn't raise one cent from today, and we will raise a lot of money in Barcelona, I believe, uh, the event is now guaranteed. And the team has a contribution towards its um, operations as well. Um, but in saying that, though, there has been the obvious benefits that come by bringing it to Europe. One is sponsorship. Uh, one is teams, or, or ability maybe now to get more teams. And the other one is obviously time zone. Um, from a TV point of view. And we will maintain our free-to-air um, policy for next time. TV is not a revenue winner. It's a money. It's a cost. It's a significant cost. Uh, because, you you know, if you if you take it as a get eyeballs rather than try and create revenue, and frankly, I don't even think you'd create much more revenue if you took it pay-to-air anyway, um, you, you, you just open the time zone on it uh, so much more. Uh, I think also you open the fan base in terms of people being able to come to the venue for obvious reasons. But in saying that, we you know want to effectively be part of putting packages together to bring as many Kiwis as we can. Um, it's interesting to look at the the dynamics within Barcelona of why, why, why Barcelona, why a city that had in two thousand and nineteen, I'm going to say thirty four million tourists. Uh, why would they want this? Uh, they've got enough tourists. And the reason, part of the reason, part of the reason, and I really never really understood this till the mayor explained it to me, is that the quality of the tourism within Barcelona has dropped. And so as they emerge from COVID, like all cities looking for how the hell are we going to get out of this? And, and in a, certainly in a city where tourism is a massive earner, um, this is part of a catalyst of a higher end sort of tourist. Um, Grant, we've seen you and the team celebrate winning this cup, and we've also seen what it means to you in the past when it's not gone to plan. I mean, your passion, your determination can't be in doubt. So with that in mind, how hard a decision was it not to defend on home waters? No, it was an incredibly easy decision because it wasn't possible. So if you go right back to the to the uh, the basis of um, the team comes first, and the team will always, and, you know, we're all we're all of that same um, belief that the you know that's kind of a DNA, the team, the team, the team. That's why we don't have you know stars, you know, selling underpants, you know, doing underpant ads. Um, um, so no, you know, it was obvious very early on the money wasn't available. Now I know that you you could interview four hundred people that would tell you the money was available. Well, I can tell you it wasn't. Um, and, and, you know, did we try and get the money in New Zealand? Absolutely. You know, I had a, there's a really poignant meeting, um, Sheb was in it too, we had with three guys that he, he, all three of them could have funded the whole thing on their air in their morning tea time. And we had a meeting with those guys. I'm going to say November last year. I can't remember the exact date. It was around about then. And um, they sat there and subsequently, you know, they'd been given the, the story about how we were trying to, you know, sell it offshore and what a bunch of roads we were and all this sort of thing. Once they were explained exactly the reality and the real numbers, not the made-up numbers that suited some agenda of other people, um, one of them said to me, look at me, and he said, and this guy is incredibly wealthy, even by 
you know, and New Zealand standing is incredibly wealthy, but he's actually well sort of wealthy in some respects too. He said, you've got a chance of raising that sort of money privately in this country. And I, that, he just confirmed what I already knew. And the interesting thing about one of those three guys that was in that meeting subsequently has, has become actually quite close. And, and a guy I didn't really know, I certainly knew he was. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we WhatsApp and text each other quite a bit now, you know. So um, once it was obvious the money wasn't there, then the decision was incredibly easy. How's that decision gone down at home ground? I mean, as you say, you can't defend against challengers of this standing without a strong team. I mean, that's pretty easy to see. How have the fans taken the decision? How have the fans taken the decision? Look, I mean, you know, obviously not necessarily that well, but it was an interesting, um, uh, um, you know, this Kiwi home defence thing that got, you know, kind of rolling. There was, they put up a, like a fan wall which I saw, like these snapshots of people who were doing these little videos. You know, we should be keeping it here, da di da di da uh, And it was a collection of male, white male, mostly bald like me, um, over 50 to 60-ish, uh, pretty much Auckland-based. And that was just an indictment to me of exactly what was so totally wrong with this, you, you need to keep it in New Zealand. So I think... I think that it was um, more a minority, but it was, you know, like all these things, it was a noisy minority. One of the things that I, I also believe is because we've won the Cup, you know, relatively easily in the, you know, Bermuda and then in Auckland, and we should have won it a lot easier in Auckland, frankly. We should have won it 7-0 on our air instead of having to actually, you know, get out of the way we had to start sailing better. Um but I think people have thought, started to believe it's quite easy. You know, well, Team New Zealand turns up, he's, you know, why not they're just that good? Well, wow. You know, it isn't like that. And you know, like I know, that it's just not like this thing. It's hard to win. Really hard to win. And so, you know, well, you know, well, they'll just sort of raise a bit of money and kind of turn up. Well, it doesn't work like that. Uh, it, you don't actually even have... I mean, I, would, I went as far as to say, and I believe this, that it wasn't even a matter of defending it and losing it. It was a matter of even being able to make the start line. Because often the, uh, you know, I quote 2003 as the absolute disaster of sport in New Zealand, in my, in my living memory, of the way they capitulated and were so bloody hopeless. And it's very often quoted that they didn't lose it because of money, because they... They had enough budget. And the answer is they did have enough budget. But they had enough budget for the people that could barely, uh, that probably would have done it for free just to, because it was so amazing to be part of Team New Zealand in the first place. They could barely get out of the viaduct of their, with the, they were so, their inability, you know. So it is about money. And, 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 and it becomes self-propelling. If you lose a couple of decent guys, they take a couple of decent guys with them. The next five guys think we might as well go somewhere else too because this thing's coming apart. And eventually you end up re-employing sort of bottom up and you just end up as the bottom dweller, employing things that are left that are not even remotely capable. So, so Team New Zealand did lose the America's Cup in 2003 because of money. Simple as that. Grant, there were four teams eagerly waiting to hear this decision. What's the timeline? What does it look like now moving forward? And, and what are the key moments we can expect to see now that the clock's very much ticking? Well, the, 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 you know, already the teams are calling me saying, when can we move to Barcelona? If you use Lingi as the example, they've really got no home. So this is perfect. They'll get there as soon as we can, you know, make it, accommodate them. The timeline really is, first of all, the basis. Because there's there's work to do um, by the ports to just you know lay the ground effectively within the port area for the bases themselves. So that's that's the first timeline, and really that's the first, second, third, and fourth timeline. The bases, the teams will make their own decisions when they will arrive, um, and and onward we go. From an organisation point of view, we're a, um, a ground up build. I mean, the, the event has one employee at the moment, and that's me. Um, so that's got to change real quick um, because, you know, we want to create a, a significant event um, because we've got a significant venue and we've got a significant, 
you know, infrastructure ability with people who want to make a big event. I think that's a really important point. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it disappoints me in New Zealand in that um, it was, you know, the, the, this will just turn up and doesn't matter if you lose and the event will just sort of be great. Well, it won't be great because the day that Team New Zealand loses the first race, assuming they can even, we, the team, the team, would have even got to the first race, the whole thing will collapse, collapse like a, you know, a, a, a house of cards. So, so you know, for that reason, we working with the city of Barcelona to bring this up, you know, to to a major level. But first and foremost, priority is 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 getting the ability for the teams um, to to be able to come to the venue. I can remember interviewing you a couple of months after the team won in Bermuda and you mentioned how the elation of victory was soon overtaken by this feeling of deep responsibility. Now that you have to deliver an America's Cup regatta, you know, you, you did it in Auckland at a time of unprecedented global upheaval. How is that feeling of responsibility now, Grant? I'm guessing it's not diminishing in, in any way. Um, well, the interesting thing about yeah, we you know we we, we did deliver it in, in you know basically a country that was closed, as you know, you know a huge responsibility, you know. But one, we've got the first pillar spot on in Barcelona, and I'd be struggling to find too many people that would disagree with that. Um, and now we have to make sure we have a team that is worthy of being able to defend, uh, because that ain't a small job. Because you know while we've been uh, working on this, and um, you know, and and not distracted because we seem. We, we, I think the guys are pretty good at multitasking. Um, the other teams, all they're doing is designing boats to try and beat us. So we, you know, we got to get in and think about the team as well. Well, I do too. Finally, Grant, the decision is made. You can now look forward to getting your head down and delivering us an America's Cup from a major global destination. How excited are you? Looking forward to 2024. Well, I don't really think about that. You know what? What has excited me to this point is that you know, particularly in the last few weeks, is just the commitment of the people that we're dealing with. And I mean, we're dealing with significant people within the Catalan region, significant people um, within the government of the Catalan region, and within the city and within the port, um, and and. You know, private private people that have done, you know, exceptionally well themselves too. So, so, so that that's that's really exciting. That that's a whole new, you know, um, new new blank canvas for for the cup to work on. And we all know that Valencia was really really successful, but it was a very different era, really different era. And that's you know can't be understood, uh, misunderstood. Well, it is I think slightly misunderstood. And if you just quote. Well, think about the Olympic Games now, and and they're sort of tending to go to cities now, or trying to to keep you know keep the billions down of it that have infrastructure that can be utilised in some cases or ready stadiums as such, but also has usage afterwards. And you know, I think one of the important things is that we it's not necessarily just what we bring; it's what we leave behind. Um, and 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 that's that's a key part. And so, with infrastructure, with youth sailing, with women sailing, with hydrogen, these are all really really important pillars to us as well. And those are really exciting. Yeah, the cup's exciting. It will be amazing. And you know, the guys are now focused heavily on what's the right way to defend. Um, you know, and try and beat off, beat these other guys off. But there's a lot more to this cup too. And um, I think, you know, we'll be judged not just by whether it's a good cup in Barcelona, because I have no doubt it will be a great cup in Barcelona, but whether we defend it successfully and also whether we leave lasting legacy in the marine industry under hydrogen and whether we um, uh, are successful and in non-tokenism of diversity in women sailing and actually um, that we try and really make a meaningful difference in that respect as well. Grant Dalton, we're all very excited. Thank you so much for your, your time. We know you're a busy man. Thank you. Thank you. Grant Dalton speaking there passionately about his role and his responsibility as the defender of the America's Cup to deliver a world-class sporting spectacle. 
Grant, many, many thanks for your time. Now, one of the teams eagerly awaiting the announcement on the venue for the Cup is the team that really captured the hearts of anyone watching the Challenger Series unfold in Auckland 2021. Their campaign was dealt a serious blow when a full-speed capsize ripped a hole in their AC-75, almost sinking millions of dollars of sailing hardware. But American Magic are back. Back representing the original holders of the Cup, the New York Yacht Club. And back with the one and only Terry Hutchinson heading the campaign. Terry, many thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast again. You're, you're becoming a bit of a regular. Thank you, Shirley. It's great to be here. We're talking to you remotely, of course, Terry. What are you up to these days? What's going on? Yeah, well, we're um, in Newport, Rhode Island right now. Um, you know, we have a 35-person design team over in the corner on the other side of the room. Uh, and we've been going through, you know, really the the final version of the AC-75 rule and, and working on getting our processes in place for designing, you know, hopefully the fastest AC-75 in the world. But the competition's quite stiff. And so, you know, I don't say that lightly because, you know, there's going to be a, you know, it's going to be an incredible evolution of these boats. I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment, but let's let's talk the event, the AC37, and of course a big announcement this week. As we all know, the next cup will be held in the Spanish city of Barcelona. Yeah. Firstly, Terry, how did this news go down with the team at American Magic? Uh, we were pretty happy. We were relieved. Um, you know, the the I think the Barcelona venue itself is going to be really good for the America's Cup. I think it's really good for all the teams, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities to be able to um, sell corporate sponsorship in a meaningful way. You know, there's it's centrally located for the world, really. And, and um, while Auckland will always be an incredible venue, an incredible place to win the America's Cup, you know, it's it's one of those, you know, it's almost like the event's evolving a little bit out of that. And I'm sure there's there's a, a lot of, of um, he said, she said with that decision. But, you know, at the same time, um, from an American Magic perspective, I think we're pretty happy with it being that much closer to home. It does feel like an exciting option. I mean, as we know, there were four possible venues in the final mix. Plus, of course, there was potential originally for the regattas to stay in Auckland. Yeah. What does this decision mean to an East Coast American team? Just talk to me a little bit about, you know, operationally, commercially. Yeah. What does it mean to American Magic? Well, logistically, it gets a lot easier. You know, the time zone, you know, we're six hours away on the time zone. And so from a a global operational perspective, it's heaps easier. You know, the, if we choose to ship things on a, on a boat, you know, it's 10 to 12 days to Barcelona versus, you know, versus 35 to 40 days to Auckland. And so in a very simple way, it gets a lot easier in, uh, in that capacity. It's a, um, you know, I think in the, the other side of it is, is that you, you know, the, we're more familiar with um with working inside europe you know the the quantum racing and the bellamente we do a lot of racing in that part of the world and so you know, we already have a a list of suppliers that we can draw off of to help us which is also great and that's not um that's not saying that auckland wasn't incredible in that way but it did take time to find our feet and uh and so in that regards i think you know you can easily see the operation being a lot um, a lot easier for us simply because we're closer. I'm sure you've been working on it for some time, but it, it does kind of feel like, you know, the red button has been, yeah. has been pressed and, yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're off. Is that the sense in the team as well? Um, well, I, as you rightfully point out, I mean, we've been going since really since October um, and getting a lot of the, the design team up and running and, and so, you know, this was a big hurdle because the threat of some of the other venues were going to preclude us from being in the event. And so in that, in that vein, it's nice to uh, have some clarity here 
Um, you know, I, I think we applaud the defender and the challenger of record for the work to getting this across the finish line. And, you know, I think the defender knew our positions on certain places and, you know, and I don't think we were a minority there. So it's nice to see the event going to a place where there's a great maritime heritage. Um, obviously, the Olympics being there, you know, that, that's a there's a, a logical pathway to the America's Cup being there, which is good. So we're excited by it. Let's talk about it as a sailing venue. How well do you know it? I've only done 52 regattas there. And uh, we sailed there in June and July where there were great sea breezes. So as we've been analyzing a little bit of the weather data for September, October, you know, it'll be a different event and it's not going to be the, uh, the sea breezes of the, of the midsummer. And so I, I think, you know, I think there, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, I, I as a challenger, um, AC 36 presented a new opportunity with a new class rule. And you always knew statistically when there was a new rule, the chances of success were always higher here. You know, the defenders taking an aggressive decision and, you know, they've, they're pulling themselves out of sleeping in their own beds, going to their own coffee shop, you know, going to their own grocery stores. And, you know, that's a, as a competitor, you can't overlook, um, overlook that. And so, I'm excited by the opportunity. I also recognize that, you know, all the teams are really, really good. So, you know, we know how this game goes and, you know, we lived it to the nth degree in the last one. So I think, uh, yeah, I'm excited by the opportunity in front of us. What's your initial weather studies looking like? What's it showing up? Yeah, kind of a light to medium regatta, you know, more of a eight to 14 knot uh, type of venue, you know, where the, the, um, the potential for higher wind strengths probably is not as much that time of year. You know, the sea state's going to be an interesting one. We haven't collected as much data on that, but you know, there's certain directions there that you get a big ocean swell and we've experienced that there. Uh, when you look at the race course, you can see that their position in it, you know, at least the preliminary stuff that we've seen is kind of along the beach. And so, you know, but there is a big break wall there as well. And so the, the feedback off the break wall, if there's any sea state, will you know, you're ripping around in a in a boat that's riding a you know, meter off the water, and uh, the rudder elevator is probably two fifty off the water or in the water, and and you know you you don't want that to breach. So I think the uh, the conditions themselves are going to lend lend it to the fact that the boat has been made lighter. Uh, it's improved the downrange capabilities of the boat, so you're going to see a faster boat in those conditions. Interesting. It's not a, a straightforward venue by no. any stretch of the imagination. But no. as you say, Terry, it was host to the Olympics in 92, of course. And we've done our research. The US sailing team bagged mm. nine medals in 92 from 10 yeah. classes. Their biggest ever medal haul from an Olympic Games. Yeah. It's a good omen, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, yesterday when we were speaking with Chris Bedford, who was there on site forecasting, he reminded us of the success that the U.S. team had there. And um, certainly you'd love to follow in those footsteps. And, you know, but as we know, as, as we've learned the hard way, this is a funny old game. And we've learned it now over five cycles. <laughs> and, um, you know, being successful here is going to take a combination of a lot of things going reasonably well. You know, as we were talking earlier, you know, the rule is very complex. And the subtleties in it, you know, always leaves your head scratching a little bit when you're thinking about what the um, the writers were were truly after in uh, in writing this rule. And so, you know, balancing the um, balancing a boat that uh, has the ability to be developed through the regatta, and then having the sailors that understand the boat to develop through the regatta, you know, I think those are going to be um, key components. The last time we spoke on the podcast, Terry, it was just after Auckland in that horrible yeah. grey period, that awful period of mm. uncertainty yeah. where reviews and re-signing backers make life pretty hard. But yeah. American Magic are very much back again, representing the New York Yacht Club again. Yeah. Give us a quick rundown of where the team is at and what can happen now that that we have a venue. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited by a couple things. The first is our partnership and relationship with the New York Yacht Club. You know, it's a AC 37 and it's an AC 38 relationship. So, um, you know, incredibly grateful to 
Commodore Zabatak has sent the flags for um, entrusting us with that responsibility because you know it's the New York Yacht Club and and they have a obviously a history with the America's Cup and so to be given that um, you know honor and responsibility is very meaningful uh, and then equally as important is the support of Happen and Doug and their commitment to the America's Cup as as they were here last night in interacting with the team you know hap is always so succinct and and um in his words where he basically said look you know when i start something i don't stop until until we're successful i've run my businesses that way um i race balamente that way and he's right so you know as and then doug will remind us how crazy we all are and we all kind of nods our heads yes and you know but you know if it was easy everybody would be doing it and so i think they're um their commitment to the team, their commitment to the uh, setup that we started. You know, I, things that I don't appreciate is that these two gentlemen have, you know, they've started businesses that have succeeded. Um, they understand the uh, cost of a startup and what that means, you know, way more than I do. And so I know as a team, we're incredibly grateful to have their support. What were the takeaways for the team from Auckland? I mean, going into a second campaign now, that continuity is always a massive advantage for a team. Yeah. What may the team build on it and what will the team do differently? Mm. Well, the first one, which I think is a powerful one, is that the we've implemented a more business-minded CEO in Mike Kayser. And Mike um, has worked with Doug and for Doug in the past you know, 15 years. So he has a long relationship with with um with Doug and in that environment. And so, you know, that there's certain parts of it. If you, I always kind of equate it to a football game where there's offense and defense and special teams. And if one part of those aren't really firing on all cylinders, then you probably don't win the game. And here it's a little bit of the same thing. You know, we had a, I think we had an incredible sailing operation in AC 36 and we executed things, you know, to a really high level all the way through, um, the cycle, but in in the business side of it, where we're trying to develop partnerships and relationships with um, with serious companies, you know, we need to have somebody that can um, understand the interactions of a boardroom and understand uh, high level executives and how to um, how to communicate, you know, the needs of what they have and what we're doing. And so, having Mike come on board, you know, helps a lot in that financial responsibility side, which is a big one for Happen Doug. I mean, this is not for the faint of heart. And so having that discipline is critical. Um, the next part of it that you have to be critical of is how the sailors race the boat. Um, you know, granted, we didn't have a wide uh, sample size uh, based on us, you know, and the, what happened to Patriot. You know, we raced the boat well during the Christmas Cup. Um, we were we were exposed to Patriots' weaknesses on the first couple of days of racing. You know, we knew we weren't going to be strong there, so you have to, um, you know, you have to look at that with a honest eye. And you know, again, happened. Doug committed to two AC40s, so we're going to increase the competition inside the team, and you know, people are going to have to fight for their spots, which is is important. Um, and then. You know, thirdly, I think like you're talking about with the designers, you know, we had, you know, we went into a bit of a hibernation through, you know, nine of the 12 months in 2021. And so we, you know, we lost part of our designers to other teams and, and, uh, but we did retain a high level of our boat builders and our production side. Um, we did retain probably, you know, 35, 40% of our designers from the last go around and we've added in new minds and, and and new designers, you know, some that were with Inos and some that were with Luna Rosa, which is exciting to uh, listen to that, you know, what they thought and their development and their pathway to uh, the Louis or Louis, <laughs> the Prada Cup finals. And, and so, you know, you, you can't help but uh, be encouraged by what you see. But I also recognize that you know, part of the team is new. And so learning to talk to each other, getting all the, um, getting all the design process in place is it's exactly that it is a process. It's not like you just automatically whip up a boat. And, you know, I think as Britt said yesterday, you know, this is one of the, this is probably the most complex boat to design because of the interactions of everything on the boat. 
and the potential for speed and how you draw uh, priorities to certain parts of the design, knowing that every single part of the design has to be uh, thought about when considering another feature on the boat. And I mean, that's kind of an obvious statement. It's how we do our 52s or how we do the 72s. But the speed potential is so much greater that you really have to, you know, you have to give it some serious consideration and the, the hydrodynamic and the aerodynamic effects of the boat because of the speed that the boat travels. It's so much more meaningful than something that you and I are used to sailing. So it's a, yeah, it, even if I was, as I'm saying, it's a bit overwhelming, <laughs> but it's an awesome, you know, awesome, um, position to be in because you get to see and experience and listen to what these really smart people are talking about. So I'm excited by it. New Zealand and the Challenger record, Ben Ainsley's Britannia team, of course, have been very keen to keep the class rule of the AC75. I mean, just run us through any changes that we'll see from the last cup to this edition in terms of, of that class rule. Yeah, well, yeah, the most noticeable is is the boat's a thousand kilos lighter. Um, the foil arms are a bit longer, so the boat's going to fly higher. And you've gone from 11 grinders, so to speak, to four cyclists on the boat. And so you're going to have a, you know, a power unit on the boat with the cyclers. And then you're going to have, um, and that's, it, it'll be interesting to see how teams set their, their boats up, whether they're sailors from AC 36 who are great athletes that transition into cyclists and have sailing experience, or you're, if you're just gonna hand all the responsibility off to the, to the four other sailors to, you know, produce the speed for the boat and just ask the guys to create oil all the time. So, you know, there's some, some decisions there. You know, when you look at the AC 40 and how the 40 set up, you know, that, that boat is specifically set up to have two helmsmen. So, you know, I you can always give a good nod to Luna Rosa for how they set up their boat in AC 36. And I would suspect you'll, you'll see the fleet gravitate in that direction, but there's a lot to do for, if you gravitate that way, there's a lot to do for four people, uh, to sail the boat properly. And then you have to have the, the oil to, uh, to make sure you got enough power in the boat. So really the weight, you know, no code zero, um, three less people and, uh, the, the, bigger foil and the deeper deeper foil arm are going to be you know the most noticeable to the to the public and looking at the protocol the next big event in the timeline is new teams so at this stage just a lingi yeah. being able to sail an ac75 yeah but after we see the entry period close in july then mid-september you could sail an ac75 would that possibly see you sail patriot is that allowed or do you have to wait yeah. to sail the new ac75 what's what's yeah. the sailing plan yes yeah, so that's a great point so you from september 17th onward you can sail um a version one ac75 and um i suspect you'll see us out on the water uh later in the year in that and um you know we have a you learn so much and you get to see so much from the previous event that, you know, there's certain things that we want to try out and there's your limit on what you can do, but you know, our schedule will have us uh, developing systems and Patriot and, you know, she deserves to be back out on the water again. So I think we're going to, we're going to follow that, uh, <laughs> follow that philosophy. And finally, Terry, you were very candid on the pod podcast after Auckland. We saw how, ending the campaign in the manner that it happened through a capsize and all the issues yeah. that that brought, it was clearly hard to take. I mean, how do you feel personally now back on track and with a clear road to the next America's cup wide open ahead of you? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a bit relieved, you know, it's been a long year <laughs> and you know, the team itself has endured a lot of uh, different things. And so I'm proud of the fact that, you know, the team has, stuck together. I'm proud that uh, Hap and Doug have um, committed to uh, backing us into AC37. <laughs> my, my brother made a funny comment to me a couple weeks ago where he said, man, you're lucky you still have a job. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you know, he's not wrong. But, you know, those, it, the relationships that we have and, um, you know, I think it was one of our strengths in AC36 as a team. You know, we had a very tight, close group. And that type of, you know, that type of bond comes from Happen Doug as well. 
and so last night when we're at our design team meeting and they're in there with the sailors and the designers and the boat builders and you know we're having a team dinner last night at the cookhouse you know it's it's got that same as it ever was feel to it which is um i think it's important because as a team culture you know we need to be able to make sure that we rely on each other and that was so on display in ac36 especially towards the end of the event so to have that carry through into ac37 to have their support you know in simple terms to know that they have my back and the back of everybody else that's part of this team and family you know you can't help but feel um good about that terry all the very best with the campaign thanks and really. look forward to seeing you in barcelona yep. soon. me too thank you So good to have American Magic back challenging for the America's Cup. Our sport needs ambassadors like Terry. So to Terry Hutchinson, a big thanks for his time. We wish him and his team all the best. In fact, if you haven't done so already, American Magic's Paul Goodison was on the pod a couple of editions back, talking us through a career that, of course, includes the Challenger Series in Auckland. It's a great listen. To everyone that's helped put this edition together, especially to the tireless Hamish Hooper at Emirates Team New Zealand. Hoops, a massive thank you. That man never stops working. And to Sarah Hawkins at American Magic, many thanks too. Some of you may have noticed the pods are touch late this month. It's a busy time of year here in Cowes. Amongst other things, the double-handed offshore season is just around the corner. And there's a talented bunch flat out prepping our new shiny Genoa Sunfast 3300 for the season. I'm sailing with the legendary Di Cafari this summer. If you've not heard her chat on the podcast, give it a listen. Six times around the planet the Fonde, the Volvo, she's an offshore machine. It's going to be good. And similar to last year, we'll be filming the whole journey as we build up to the mammoth 1,800 mile round Britain and Ireland later this summer. Watch out on my social media for links to the films. They'll be in the usual spot on YouTube if you want to check them out. If you've enjoyed the pod and would like to support it, please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast we work hard to bring you a real quality ad-free listen it's lovely to have your support so many many thanks for that and thanks too to another incredibly busy talent the tireless tim at vertigo films putting in the hours producing these podcasts tim as ever a giant thank you until next time thank you so much for listening have fun on the water and sail safe everyone This is Castle One. Castle One. Race off speaking. speaking. Oh, oh, oh. That's a good one, Jimmy. Oh, oh, oh. 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 Oh,